Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Hey there, crazy diamonds. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about binary decisions, zeros and ones, and why you might consider them as an instrument for decision making during your bicycle racing adventures, or perhaps in daily life. But first, I got to talk about new bike day. I recently picked up a new bike. New bike day is always a good day. And I got myself a mosaic. I'm a mosaic dealer now. If you're not familiar with mosaic, they make super amazingly, fantastically stupendous titanium bicycles. They're based here in Boulder, Colorado. Aaron Barcheck, the principal chief frame builder and owner. He's a buddy of mine and he sponsored a cyclocross team that I raced for many years ago, a single speed team. It was called single barrel. And he made us some steel frames for that team. And that was a really cool bike. It was one of the few bicycles that I've sold in my selling of bicycles chapters, where later I regretted it a bit. Probably should have hung on to that one. It was a bit of an odd bird, though, because this was about 2013. And it was right in the era of bicycles that were disc, but some of them still had quick release skewers. And that was this bike. It was just where things were in terms of wheel availability and whatnot. So it was a through axle bike with disc brakes, but no, sorry, it wasn't a through axle bike. It was a disc brake bike with skewers, which was a bit odd. Through axles are definitely the way to go with disc brakes because of all the torsional force around the hub that's generated by the, the discs. So uh, the bike handled great and worked awesome, but it was a bit weird and you couldn't get you know wheels for it today for say for example, without having to go build some or something if I needed new wheels. Anyway, I got myself a sick new tie mosaic and I've been riding it the last few days and it just puts a smile on my face. It's got a really super cool paint job. It's a Prismatica version 2.0. I'll put up some pictures of it at some point if you all want to check it out. 
And I'm going to do a podcast with Aaron Barczyk in the near future. And we're going to talk about frame building and how he got into it and the decisions he makes around frame building. And we're going to get into some stuff like his particular thoughts on geometry bits like long chain stays versus short chain stays, tubing profiles, budding profiles of tubes, bits and pieces like that. Bits and bobs, as they say, across the pond. Also installed an Enduro XD15 bottom bracket in that bike. And I got to say, I'm a little bit of a human Shiba Inu. If you follow me, I just tend to like things tidy and neat. I'm not scruffy. I'm not a St. Bernard. I'm not a shaggy dog. And when I ride in the rain, ever since I was well, 15 and first started riding bikes, riding bikes in the rain just really bothered me because the entire time I was riding in the rain, I was thinking about my bearings getting ruined. And now I don't really think about that anymore. It just doesn't matter. Also, I did finally succumb and go the way of electronic shifting. This bike has an Altegra 12-speed group on it, and it is nothing short of amazing. Thank you, Nick at Shimano, for helping me out with that Grupo. And also, when you're riding in the rain, you don't have to worry about your cables getting all gunked up. That's pretty cool. So, technology. I tried to resist having more batteries in my life for as long as possible, but I think it's somewhat inevitable that they will consume us. Although I do not own, nor do I intend to own a Tesla anytime in the near future. Amazing cars, Elon. Well, moving on. So today I want to speak about binary decisions, specifically ones and zeros, and how you might use this concept of binary decisions to help you out. I get a lot of decisions, I get a lot of questions, sorry, I'm a little tired tonight, about tactics from my riders and from people who, who write me emails, and they want to know more about how to learn about tactics and road races or criteriums or fondos or for time trials, tactical strategies for how you're going to pace the course. And unfortunately, the best answer for that is frequently just go do more bike racing and then have a good post-mortem discussion with your coach. This is what I did at the climb. This is when I decided to attack. This is when I forgot to drink any fluids for an hour. This is when I blew up, etc. And those types of discussions can be really instructive, but they don't help you for your next race directly. Because if you've never done a circuit race with lots of exposed terrain and crosswinds, then you won't really know how to handle that type of event. And to a certain degree, especially when races get more nuanced and more extreme and at a higher level, there is no answer other than going and doing it. About 50% of all bike racing is made up on the spot. That's a really important point. I'll come back to that. But we can use the platform of binary decisions to sort of understand how we navigate our way through the nuance of tactical, tactical decision-making. It's almost like a matrix. And first, I want to offer some context for this discussion. We should always consider our binary decisions, our ones and zeros, in the context of perspective and presence. 
perspective, meaning that if you have the big picture as a background for your decision-making moments, then it helps guide you. It can help direct you and give you vision. Now, that might be as simple as I want to win this race. Whether or not you want to win the race or actually it's realistic for you to win the race may be two different discussions. But if your goal is to win the race, then your perspective is that you want to work towards winning the race and all binary decisions should support that perspective. Now, that might seem rather trite as a perspective to head into a race, but in reality, there are a lot of opportunities for you to race without having the perspective of winning. You might be there to help a teammate. You might be there to learn. It might be your first race back from injury or post-COVID. And so you might not be thinking, I want to win this race because you know it's not realistic for you to win that race because you're coming back from COVID. To take an example that probably some of us can relate to. So in that instance, your goal might be, I would like to be competitive to the halfway point. And then after that, I'll see what happens. Or it might be, I want to help drive the pace on a climb for a teammate because he's a good climber or she's a good climber. And then I will let them attack over the top and do their thing. Maybe you have other goals. Maybe your goal is simply to learn as much as you can about a new type of racing that you've never competed in before. These are all possibilities. So consider the perspective. Also consider that you may have a role within a team. For example, if you have a sprinter and that sprinter has a good chance to win the race and you want to work to support that sprinter, then your job may be to get in breakaways and then decide whether to contribute to that breakaway or whether to passively kill it or make it seem like you're working but not really work that hard so that the other riders drive it really hard and then get tired out and then your teammates chase down the break and then your sprinter is able to win. This is an example of how we can play roles in a race given the perspective of our teammates that enable an outcome of winning, but it's not necessarily our own victory we're working for directly. Or as Jonathan Vodders once famously said, cycling is a team sport where an individual wins. So perspective is really important. And arguably, it's really important in all things. You can use the same binary decision, making these ones and zeros to make choices about things like diet or training decisions. Do I train hard today? Do I train easier today? Do I do another interval or do I call it good? And that's what the binary system is. It is simply a one or a zero. It's a yes or a no. And when we really boil all decisions down to their fundamental, elemental, most basic form, that's what they are. It's a yes or a no. Do I ask that girl on a date? Yes or no. Do I put that Lay's potato chip in my mouth? Yes or no. And when we look at it very directly, very matter-of-factly through our David Goggins eyeballs, then things get really simple because you take the emotion out of it and you can take some of the conflict or tension out of a decision. And this is a useful tool. It's a cutting tool. It's a masculine yang cutting tool to help us navigate through the murky waters of emotion and indecision. And I'm not recommending we do this in all instances. There are many times when floating in the murk is a good idea and part of life. 
Feelings are not equations to be solved. However, in bike races, we want to cut. We want to accomplish. We want to do. So that's where this perspective applies. Also, the other contextual concept that's super important for us to keep in mind, in addition to perspective, is presence. The more present you are in the moment and the more absolutely focused and open you are, the easier it is to make binary decisions that support your end goal, your dream goal or objective, or your overall perspective for an event. If you're distracted because you are bouncing all over in the monkey mind, or you didn't properly prepare your equipment, and so your derailleur's skipping when you should be covering attacks, or you're stressed out about the fact that you're not wearing a base layer when the weather clearly said it was going to be 48 degrees and raining, or you didn't change your tire before the race, and now you're sailing through a bunch of criterium corners wondering if you've got enough traction. All these types of scenarios are indicative of someone whose presence was sabotaged by their own lack of preparation. And that's only one example of how we can choose to not be present. If we're not in alignment with our dream goal or objective, our overall perspective, if we're working for a sprint around our team who we secretly think is a dick, then we're probably not as likely to be as good at covering all the attacks that will help our sprinter win the race. Right? See what I'm saying? So the more in alignment we are with our perspective, the more clear we are about our parameters for what we want to do on the day in competition, the easier it is to be present during each and every moment of those decisions. This is what cycling in alignment is about on the competitive battleground. That's really cool. I just tied my own podcast title into the middle of a lecture without even trying to. Good job, Pierce. So what do we mean when I'm talking about these binary decisions? Let's break it down into actual examples so that we can be clear. This is how I think. I think in big picture and then I bring it to real world examples. And this always drove me nuts as a student in school when people would talk to big picture and then not give me examples so I couldn't quite have a clear understanding or vice versa. They just went off on tangents using specific examples of concepts we were trying to learn but never gave me the big picture. I need both forests and trees. I need both perspective and ones and zeros. So when we're talking about ones and zeros, we're literally talking about micro decisions we make in a Peloton is one way to think about it. So when you're moving up in the group, do you want to move up or do you not want to move up? If you do, that's a one. And every time the riders part in front of you, you advance your position. Every time there's a hole for you to stick your bars into, you continually push into that hole, even if the hole's pretty small. That's examples of ones. You're actively moving up the middle of the group by filling holes and filling void space. One, 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 one. 
On the other hand, if you don't want to be that close to the front of the group because you're conserving energy, maybe it's early in the race and the breakaway has already been established and you want to slide to the back and save a little more energy at risk of, of course, missing something else that happens. Remember, if you're not at the front of the group, you're following, you're at the mercy of other riders' reactivity or lack thereof. So if you want to conserve, you're sliding back. So that means when there's a hole in front of you, you do not advance. That would be a zero. But there are all little intricacies about how this can play out just because a hole opens in front of you and you are in one mode that doesn't mean you necessarily move forward on that particular hole maybe you're trying to move to the left side of the group because the wind is coming from the right or there's a left hand turn coming and you want to be on the left side of the group heading into that turn so instead of moving into a void that happens in front of you you are working your way more to the left and so you're waiting for opportunities for voids to open on the left. These are different types of ones. When do we have examples where there are all ones or all zeros? Well, there are a few that I thought about and came up with. One is in a case of an extreme crosswind, a high strength crosswind situation where we know the peloton is going to explode. This is all ones. It is always better to be on the offensive in a crosswind. And that doesn't mean attack necessarily. That means you have to put yourself in the wind and drive the pace with other riders collectively in a smooth but organized fashion, cohesive fashion, we'll say. This is how you destroy the peloton in a matter of meters. I've been in races where in 300 meters, the peloton's gone into five groups. And when I was good at it, I made the front group every time, but early in my career, I got some pretty solid ass kickings and was in the third or fourth group. And this is a great example of how you pretty much just have to go do it in order to learn it. There's not a great way to teach crosswind riding. You can teach lots of concept. You can draw little lines on boards, but until you go battle the gutter, you, you won't really know what's happening. It's like reading a book about making love or having sex when you've never had sex. It's just, there's only so much you can learn through print. <laughs> you have to do. There are things you have to learn in this world by doing. So in a crosswind situation, a raging crosswind situation, you are all ones. Every time there's a void, you are moving aggressively. Every millimeter you can stick your wheel into, you do. Every square millimeter of draft you can find, you do. Even to the extent that you are hanging your body off one side of the bike more than the other to put it in the shadow of the rider's draft in front of you. This is what a good crosswind rider does. And a good crosswind rider knows that they are forced to make the pace and hit the wind when they hit the front of that echelon. That's the way for them to actually paradoxically conserve the highest amount of energy while maintaining their chance to be in the lead group. These are ones, ones, ones. The beauty of that one situation in that crosswind is that you actually don't have to go that hard. You just have to make a bunch of ones in a row and you let the wind do the work for you and it shreds the peloton. So any rider who makes a single zero in that situation will probably miss the first group. A single zero. That is, they don't quite move up enough. They don't punch the pedals enough to stay in the draft, sharply in the shadow of the draft. 
they'll lose the wheel and that's it. It's 12 riders working together against one rider. It doesn't matter how strong you are. You're never going to cross that gap. You can be Tony Martin or Tom Boonen or whoever. If there's 12 really strong riders and you've got, they've got three lengths on you, you're almost for sure done. Almost without exception. So where are, what are our examples of all zeros? Well, that's pretty simple. If you are completely shattered, bonked, uh, legs are totally, totally smoked. You've got nothing left. You're in all zero mode. That is, you are feathering accelerations, meaning you are, you're letting accelerations go to the best of your ability that you can while maintaining contact with the group. You're sag climbing, you're sagging accelerations. You're always looking for the most negative space in the Peloton in terms of work and wind resistance. And you are riding in a super aerodynamic position and you are eating and drinking and eating and drinking and trying to recover as best as you can. That would be all zeros. Well, the eating and drinking are ones. So even in that example, there are still ones. You're doing something active to improve your performance. That's a one. Which is not to say that zeros are negative or detract from performance. Cycling, there's a common misperception in the sport of cycling that it's just a big dick swinging contest. Excuse the expression, ladies, but over a swinging contest that we masculinize racing and that it's a big test for who's strongest. I mean, this is, this perspective is such a juvenile, childlike perspective of what cycling is. People confuse cycling with a marathon or what's a better example powerlifting i mean it it's not that often that the strongest rider wins a bike race we all glorify the tour de france and we all saw pogachar get dropped this year and and saw vinigo win and so we glorify that outcome as sort of the ultimate expression or archetype of cycling because he was the strongest rider over 3 weeks but this is confusing the forest for the trees. Look at the race. Look at each individual stage of the race. Look at each mountain preem that was won, each intermediate sprint that was won. There are a million permutations of how that race played out in each stage victory alone. Look how much variation there was, how, much, how many ones and zeros came to bring us this unpredictable result or seemingly unpredictable from the observer's chair of the race. This is fundamentally what cycling is. It's a chess match on wheels. It's an opportunity for people to use their binary decision-making to produce an outcome. Over three weeks, the averages play out to where one guy wins the yellow jersey, another guy wins the polka dot jersey or one woman wins the the yellow jersey they only get a week for it to play out but maybe that'll change in the coming years but those are just the averages and that's almost the boring part if you ask me what's exciting is how people choose to solve the equation i mean look at what bling did when he won that stage that was him solving the equation with the tools he had and going all in on ones at the finish with a powerful candle of perspective 
candle meaning he lit it and he stared at it and focused on it. It was his burning flame of hope that he was going to win that stage and it worked for him. So we can use these ones and zeros to illustrate our, uh, some of our tactical decisions. And then in retrospect, in the post-mortem analysis, we can go back and look and say, okay, I made a one there or too many ones in a row. I pulled too hard in that breakaway. And here's a way where your perspective can help you with the ones and zeros a bit further. I'll make this blanket tactical statement. You should only work, meaning do time in the wind at any point in a race if it will directly or indirectly increase your chances or your teammates' chances of winning or placing higher, depending on what your goals are. A lot of people miss this basic point. They just go to the front and ride the front when it's not going to directly influence their chance of winning the race. They pull super hard in a breakaway when doing that will not increase the chances of them winning. Now, if you're in a break, let's say that you can barely sprint out of a paper bag and you get in a breakaway and you're in a breakaway with five riders and three of them, you are sure are quite faster than you are when you get to the line. But perhaps your perspective is I've never placed in a race at this level before. So I'm pretty sure that if I go hard, I can make the podium. I can beat at least one of those three guys that are most likely faster than me to the line. So I'm going to go in and pull nice and hard in this break because I'm motivated by the potential to get my first podium at this level. Okay. That's reasonable. That's a good perspective to have. Then you can play your ones and zeros accordingly in that breakaway. On the other hand, I would also offer that an alternative way to think about it is minimum effective dose. What is the least amount you can pull in that breakaway and still have the best opportunity to get a podium? Maybe if you just squeak through and let other riders pull harder than you, you increase your chances of sprinting, but also you increase the chances of getting away with 5K to go. And maybe you take the whole victory. That is to say, think about your ones and zeros relative to how hard the other riders are riding in the breakaway. There are very few scenarios where you should be the rider who's pulling the hardest. And if you are, it normally indicates will say potentially a desperate perspective. That is, I really want this break to go to the line. I don't care what place I get. I have to have this breakaway go to the line. It doesn't matter if everyone beats me in the sprint. And I've done this many times in my young racing career. So I can identify with that mindset, but there's a point when you realize that you handed the race to everyone else and there's no reason to do that in the vast majority of all cases. So when you're in a breakaway situation, you're constantly, I would say, comparing yourself to the other riders in the break in terms of effort. How long are their pulls? How hard are their pulls? Are their pulls maintaining pace or accelerating pace? And one little tidbit I'll offer also is if you count breaths when you're on the front, anything longer than eight breaths is a really long pull in most breakaway situations. 
there are exceptions to that. If there are two riders off the front and you're off the front for 60K, you might have to take longer pulls. But in most normal situations, eight breaths is a nice long pull. That ends up being about 12 seconds most of the time. That's plenty. The other concepts I want to touch on that will influence our perspective uh, and application of our ones and zeros, our yeses and nos, are the concepts of surrender and flow. Surrender is one of the reasons I don't really prefer to have many tactical conversations with riders because if I really sit and make a list, a breakdown of how little control we have over the outcome of a bike race or actually, to be honest, most things in our lives, most people just get upset or stressed out. They don't really don't like that conversation. But the fact is, that's the way bike racing is. This is what I mean or what I meant when I said earlier that 50% of all racing is made up on the spot. I mean, ask any world tour level director. They go into the stage with all kinds of information. They've got weather, including temperature and precipitation forecasts, humidity, wind direction, and velocity. They've got terrain information. They've got the distance, the KOMs, the changes in course direction. They've got the condition of the roads, little roads, big roads, smooth roads, bumpy roads, cobblestones, etc. If they're talking about a race in Spain or Portugal, they're mentioning descents that are heavily canopied by a forest and probably haven't seen the sun in months and are therefore covered with a thin layer of moss, etc. So we have all these variables to consider. And then we have the, in some cases, predictable, but in many cases, unpredictable tactics of other teams to consider. And then we have our own cards to play. How are we going to navigate this, all this information and maximize our chances for a result or victory on the day? But then, of course, you get into the race and the weather's wrong. Half your team crashes. Your team leader gets a flat half the peloton crashes there are french protesters glued to the road any number of things can happen teams behave unpredictably teams attack at moments when you would never think that they would because it doesn't make sense or because you didn't think of it and they surprised you teams line up on the front for no good reason teams that we would expect to chase a breakaway do not etc etc uh your riders on that day have what we thought were going to be great legs and have horrible legs or conversely we expected them to be pretty tired and suddenly they're rock stars all these different equations represent things that we can't really control or necessarily even predict that influence the outcome of the race obviously so bike racing is in large part about surrender to the idea that we have very little control over how a Peloton is going to negotiate obstacles about how other people are going around, going to go around corners or, or whether our fragile pneumatic devices will continue to hold air on descents or at any point during the day. Now it's pretty interesting that we have iPhones and Tesla's, but we still get flat tires. Go figure. But we have to accept that there is a very large say energy of unpredictability in bike racing or in cycling in general and 
some people would argue that's what makes racing interesting. I don't know that I always agree with that, but I'll say that I accept it as part of the sport and it's just the way things go. I mean, probably every one of my riders that I coach has what I call a bike catastrophe day at least once a year. And I probably do too. That is where you've got four flat tires in a row or your derailleur just decides to fall off or your chain falls off or your hydraulic shifting suddenly loses pressure uh, or excuse me, hydraulic brakes lose pressure and et cetera. These things happen, right? Bike catastrophes happen. Fundamentally bikes, even though they all cost five to $15,000 are still really simple mechanical devices and are thus prone to entropy and mechanical failure. This is a fact we have to keep in mind, no matter how fancy the paint job is and how much we spent on the weird German handlebars that weigh less than they should and cost more than they should, all things still fall apart. Entropy reigns supreme and the only constant is change. So surrender is a really important concept for me in this and it influences my perspective in the sense that I have a sense of flow or I achieve, I try to attain a sense of flow. That is just as water flows through a river around obstacles, around logs, over rocks, between rocks, we also must learn to flow around obstacles and to be a bit like water, relentless and still moving towards the goal, but also at the same time capable of traversing an object, going over a waterfall, etc. You get the idea. This ties into the concept of flow state, which in my mind is the blend of rational thought that is the frontal brain, we'll say, and also the instinctual brain, maybe you might say the reptile brain, those two coming together, the brain without text, without mental chatter, the reactive mind that simply sees an attack and immediately follows it without hesitation. This married to the capacity for rational thought, welded to or in conjunction with, I'll say, the ability to carefully consider tactical decisions. I've got 5k left. When do I want to attack? What team is driving on the front of the group right now? What does that mean for me? These types of perspectives, um, this rider is really strong in the break and he's dropping all of us on every hill. How do I handle that in the next three short climbs? These types of tactical thoughts married with instinct are what produce an optimal performance. Because if we're too instinctual and we don't have enough chess game going on, or conversely, if we're all analytics and no heart, no feeling, then we're going to be limited. Uh, my best races have always been a blend of both. And I think that's a common theme. This is not just an N of one statement. So, Surrender turns into flow if we are in alignment with those concepts. If we fight them, if we're too analytical, if we're too determined to do the math, the outcome, the algebra, we're too 
scientific or calculated in our tactical mind, usually it doesn't produce the optimal outcome. It, it won't give us the best result we're capable of in my experience. I know these concepts are really obtuse. And if you're looking for a double blind cross-controlled scientific study to prove this, well, let me know if you find one. Um, that would be a heck of a, an experimental design, but I don't really think these are the things that we measure. These are the things we learn through three decades of racing. So there you go. You can also, last points on this, you can also use that binary model to make decisions about, as I mentioned, training or diet. Now let's take our example of our rider who wants to lose a little bit of weight. More common than riders who want to gain weight in our sport, which seems to be endlessly glorifying of men who cannot do pull-ups uh, or lift their own UCI weight legal bikes onto a roof rack. It's pretty simple. When you boil decisions down to one and zeros, you take the emotion out of it. Are you going to eat that bag of chips or not? Look critically at the decisions that are in alignment with your goal, your perspective. Your perspective is that you're going to climb faster if you lose weight. Well, okay, that's a arguably pretty childlike perspective from my worldview. Uh, I would have to qualify that or refine it with the statement, yeah, you'll climb faster if you lose more weight, assuming you don't lose muscle or you're not so broken down that you can't recover. And those are really important qualifiers for me. I don't think a lot of people get that far from the conversations I've had. So I invite you to think deeper about that topic, but you know, Watts per kilo is great, but remember we can't, we can't destroy all the Watts to uh, chop off the kilos. So when we're trying to lose weight and we use ones and zeros to look through our cupboard and see all the processed food and all the junk calories that are so easy to eat and we make the choice to track our calories for three weeks and really educate ourselves about what we're putting in our mouths and then have a greater understanding of meal timing and what constitutes our meals. And then we begin to educate ourselves about blood sugar spikes or glycemic load of our meals. Then we can make real change. And as soon as we have that education, then we can act on ones and zeros. Do I preload my high carbohydrate meal with a little bit of fat in order to offset the glycemic load or not? So just planting seeds on that with some basic concepts, uh, I hope you find that stirs the pot a little bit and gives you some ideas. I'm not trying to be trite or pedantic with this discussion. I think that these concepts can be applicable and hopefully helpful to a lot of people. We complicate things in our minds, but the reality is decisions are ones and zeros. Do I drink more water or less? Do I eat more carbohydrates or less, et cetera? And the answer, by the way, is more water, yes, and more carbohydrates, most likely. Another way in which binary decisions are significant is in relationship to other. 
I think of relationship as a balance of tension between what someone else wants and what I want. Loving relationship can be a balance and tension between support and challenge. And just as you can boil all decisions down to this one and zero, this, this binary division or cutting tool, really all aspects of relationship dance around this fundamental issue of challenge or support. When someone you care about, whether it's an intimate partner or a husband or a wife or boyfriend or girlfriend, or simply a friend or an acquaintance or a teammate, when they do something that you don't like or don't approve of, there's tension. There's the potential for conflict. And you have to handle that tension. You have to address it. And sometimes by using this binary perspective, we gain the simplicity to address this tension in a way that can help some of us be less, have less friction. This is a tool that I've learned to use. Some people see me as extremely direct at times, and I just find it to be so much simpler to be direct when I want something or don't want something. It's just a function of open communication. But when I was younger, I would experience people like that. And it really drove me insane. I felt like those people were challenging. They were, there was too much conflict in that energy. There was too much ch- challenge for me to handle. I could, it made me uncomfortable. I couldn't deal with it. And it took me a long time and a lot of maturity to understand that this is a healthier way to walk through life. When you are afraid of challenge or when you shy from challenge, really what you end up doing is fostering resent. You you build a pool of resentment in yourself. And this is not a healthy way to walk through the world. Trust me, I've done it on many occasions. There's a feeling, uh, sorry, there's a saying, feelings buried alive never die. And this is exactly what happens when you really want to tell someone to go climb a tree, but you bite your tongue out of what you perceive to be as politeness or respect or because you want to avoid conflict. This just results in internal tension, internal friction. And this is not the way to walk through the world. I'm not saying that every time you disagree with everyone, you have to go yell at them. That's not how to read the point I'm making. I am saying you have to be authentic and true to your own north. Your own true north has to be clear to you. And if someone is in violation of that, or if something they do is in conflict with that, you've got to let them know. It doesn't mean you always get your way. It doesn't mean that they will yield. It doesn't mean that your life will be perfect and filled with rainbow unicorns. But even the act of simply expressing your true perspective on things can really help to alleviate the sensation of friction inside you, even if the result is not anything astronomically explosive or life-changing, even if the result doesn't end up being what you want it to be. So 
when we're using these cutting tools, as I'll call them, these binary perspectives, they can move us towards simplicity and clarity in our relationships. And for me, this is definitely of value. That's all I've got for today. I just wanted to share those thoughts with you. They've been bouncing around in my my little hollow skull for a while, and I felt that they might be a benefit. So hopefully they are. I may do a series of some shorter internal discussions. Maybe I'll call them like this. If you liked it, great. Let me know. If you thought this sucked, that's okay. Let me know as well. Organizing the next round of exciting guests to come on the pod. I got a lot of great feedback from Sebastian's pod, so thank you for that. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I think he's pretty freaking smart, so it's good to have him on. That's all for now. People, remember to pedal consciously and with intention. And then also to just take some time to enjoy your cycling and enjoy your time in nature. Thanks for listening. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about, and while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people, and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. 
That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.